0: In the spring of 1942, General Douglas MacArthur was commanded by President Roosevelt to withdraw American troops from the Philippine Islands. A Japanese takeover seemed imminent. But before MacArthur left, he promised the Filipinos, I will return. At the time, he was criticized for egotistically phrasing his promise in the first person, I will return. But that wasn't the Filipinos' reaction. His promise boosted their morale during the entire occupation. They knew MacArthur was a man of his word and wouldn't break his promise. Well, today we're going to study Jesus' farewell address to his disciples. For he, too, is leaving soon. And he wants to ensure his followers that he's going to return on the night before the cross. In the upper room, Jesus promised, I will come again. And as we sang this morning, Jesus is also a man of his word. Thus, his promise has boosted the morale of believers for the last 2,000 years. Like the Filipinos in World War II, we also live behind enemy lines. And it's our general's promise, his personal promise, that keeps us from losing heart. Jesus will return. And by the way, Douglas MacArthur did return to the Philippines two and a half years later. He kept his promise, defeated the Japanese, and liberated the Filipinos. And one day, Jesus too will keep his promise. He'll come again, defeat the armies that rally against him, and liberate our world from the influence of Satan. What a day that'll be. Chapters 14 through 17 was Jesus' farewell address to his disciples. He begins in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now life on earth is about to get rough for his disciples, and so Jesus turns their eyes toward heaven. In fact, he promises them a mansion. But this may not be what you think. You know, when I envision a mansion, what comes to my mind is the Biltmore House in Asheville. Or maybe Hearst Castle in California. But the word translated mansion, monai literally means rooms. It's from the root word to stay. You could translate it staying places. A monai is simply a place to stay. Realize Jesus isn't promising us something out of the lifestyles of the rich and famous or MTV cribs, sprawling master baths and swimming pools and home theaters aren't standard amenities in heaven. When Jesus promises us a mansion, he's simply saying a place to stay. He's comforting us with the assurance that there is room for us in the Father's house. Think it over. It might be more like hell than heaven if God stuck you in a cavernous mausoleum with 40 acres to mow and hundreds of windows to wash. That's not heaven to me. There's an old maxim, home is a man's castle, but an actual castle might be a hassle. I'm sure heaven will be comfortable, but probably not gaudy, and I'm thankful. You know, built into the outside of the temple in Jesus' day were 38 chambers. These were rooms for the priests and the Levites. At times, they would stay right there in God's house. And this is heaven. This is the picture Jesus is conjuring up. There's a room inside the Father's house for us. In northern Israel today, after Palestinian kids marry. It's customary for the new family to move in with their father. Houses are expanded upwards. When children have children, another floor gets added to the house. And this is the type of imagery that Jesus is conjuring up here. Not spacious, custom-built estates, but intimacy and fellowship. In heaven, we're going to live under the Father's roof. We're going to eat at our Father's table. We're going to spend time with our Father. We're going to live with our Father God. You know, on earth, Jesus was a carpenter, perhaps the kind that built houses. Interestingly, in heaven, he's involved in the same trade. He's preparing for us a place for all eternity. It's in addition to the Father's house. Today, Jesus is in heaven working on us a place to stay. He tells us about it in verse 2. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Heaven's probably not going to be gaudy, but it's certainly going to be glorious. You know, this world that we live in is a beautiful place, and God created it in just six days. Do you realize Jesus has been working on heaven for the last 2,000 years? Can you imagine what it's going to be like? The glories that await us. For he says in verse 4, And where I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Thomas was thinking of an earthly destination. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here is a basic tenet. Christianity is not a code of ethics. It's not a set of doctrines. It's a person. See, you don't become a Christian just by following Jesus' teachings, but by engaging with Jesus personally. Jesus doesn't just show the way. He is the way. Jesus doesn't just speak the truth. He is the truth. He doesn't just give life. He is the life. God's way is revealed. His truth is received. His life is released. When you come and embrace Jesus, he is the way that keeps us going. He's the truth that keeps us knowing. He's the life that keeps us growing. All we need is Jesus Christ. And notice too, Jesus is not a way or a truth or a life. He is the way, the truth, the only life. He's not one of many roads to God. He is the only road. Jesus puts it plainly. No one comes to the Father except through me. But you can argue, Sandy, that sounds pretty narrow-minded. And you're right, it's very narrow. Why would God not want to be more inclusive, you might ask? Have you ever noticed how the IRS is so open-minded? You ever notice those fellows over there? You know, this year, rather than copy my income off my W-2, I just estimated, kind of lowballed the thing, you know. And dependents, I counted all 11 staff members here from the church. And when I figured my tax, why bother with those cumbersome tables? You know, I just paid what seemed fair to me. And if you're the IRS listening, please, I'm kidding. Everybody knows the Internal Revenue Service has rules. Those people don't budge. It's black or white, right or wrong. Former heavyweight champ Joe Lewis was once asked, Joe, who hit you the hardest during your ring career? Joe Lewis replied, Uncle Sam. (laughs) My point is, there are issues in life, like the tax code, that aren't open to your interpretation. And you don't negotiate your way to heaven. The entrance is narrow. God intended it to be so. You come on God's terms or not at all. And the only way to heaven is through Jesus. Years ago, we Christians used to hold up our index finger as a sign. One way. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. You know, here's the desire of every human heart. Whether you're conscious of it or not, show us the Father. We're all longing until we know the God who made us. But Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Here, Jesus asserts his deity, his Godhead. Jesus was God incarnate. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus says. He was God in human skin. Though God is three persons, he's one substance. That means to see Jesus was to see the Father. Both were fully God and are fully God. And for three and a half years, Philip had walked with Jesus, his creator, he had walked with God along grassy paths through the Galilee, down the dirt roads of Judea. And yet it had never really dawned on Philip who was by his side. He had been walking with God. Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me, Jesus says? The words that I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Both the words of Jesus and his works had testified that he was God. But then he says, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Now, one of the reasons that the disciples were so depressed over all this talk of Jesus' departure is that they interpreted it as a setback for their movement. You know, these events, Lazarus' resurrection and Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, had stirred the interest of the masses. Momentum was building. And now Jesus was leaving? I mean, this would be like loading the bases for Freddie Freeman. The brave's best hitter. And yet rather than come to bat, he leaves and goes to Disney World. What gives, Freddie? Jesus had just told them, believe me, because of the works. And they had believed. The disciples had witnessed miracle after miracle. But now Jesus is leaving them. And he tells his disciples, you will do greater works. How can this be? And yet, when you read the book of Acts, this is what happened. In terms of quantity, 12 disciples scattered around the world, empowered by God's Spirit, accomplished more than one man said in Israel. See, here was Jesus' promise to them, verse 13. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And this is Jesus' promise to you. If you ask anything in his name, he'll do it. But notice the promise is one stipulation. God will do whatever you ask if you pray in Jesus' name that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The Masters Golf Tournament is the toughest ticket in sports. Folks pay thousands of dollars to attend. But not me. Every year, I enter through that gate with no money, no ticket, no right to be there on my own, only a name. My son, Mac, works for Augusta National, and his employment gains us entrance. At that gate, my name means nothing, but Mac's name is the ticket that unlocks the vault. It took me four kids, but I finally found the goose that laid the golden egg. And trust me, this has glorified the son, in the Adams family at least. The youngest is the star, man. Whatever Mac asks of us, the rest of us obey. For we are trusting in his name. And this is the way it is in God's family. The Father has glorified the Son by putting the ticket in His name. Your ticket, that is whatever you ask, is in Jesus' name, not yours. That's why you follow His instructions. You don't approach God in some haughty, selfish, materialistic kind of way. No, you live your life in ways that honor Jesus. Jesus tells us in verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you're grateful for this access and this blessing that you receive through his name, then you'll follow his instructions. You'll do his will. You'll do it his way. Jesus tells us, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. You know, in sports, there are players who specialize in coming off the bench In basketball, it's the sixth man. In baseball, it's the pinch hitter or the relief pitcher. These guys are the super subs. And Jesus also has a super sub. This is why his departure wasn't a setback. He had a supernatural sub that took his place. Jesus ascended to heaven, but the Holy Spirit came and picked up where Jesus had left off. The Holy Spirit would be with his disciples forever. Notice this term, helper. The Holy Spirit is our helper. The original language, it's Parakletos, which means to come alongside or assist. In Greek courts, a paraclete was the appointed defense attorney. And the Holy Spirit is our defender. Jesus is our advocate with the Father, the Bible tells us, but the Spirit is his co-counsel. Here's my best illustration for the Holy Spirit. He's like the White House Secret Service. You know, everywhere the president goes, he has bodyguards. These guys are willing to take a bullet for the commander in chief. And if I looked through spiritual eyes at you, I would see sitting right next to you this guy in a black suit, wearing sunglasses. He's got him an earpiece. He's probably packing. He's the Holy Spirit. And he is the believer's spiritual bodyguard. He'll take a bullet for you. You can lean into him. You can trust him. God in the Holy Spirit has been promised to live and help you. And notice Jesus calls the Spirit another helper. In the original language, it means another of the same kind. In other words, the Holy Spirit's like Jesus. He picks up where Jesus leaves off. He has the same goals, the same methods, the same nature as Jesus. When the Holy Spirit comes, nobody puts up under new management signs because nothing changes. See, God wanted the disciples to have the same relationship with His Spirit that they had had with Jesus, just without the physical constraints that limited Jesus on earth. Of course, that would require more from the disciples they would have to learn to pray, wouldn't they? They'd have to learn to have faith. They'd have to learn to live spiritually oriented lives rather than physically oriented lives. Oh, certainly the disciples were going to miss Jesus, but with the Holy Spirit coming off the bench, the team was going to improve and continue to win if the, holy, if the disciples learned to walk in the Spirit. And then in verse 17, Jesus introduces the Helper. As the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Notice this the Holy Spirit is with us prior to our conversion. It's the Spirit who convicts us of sin and points us to the Savior. But once we embrace Jesus as Lord, the Spirit of God moves in us. God's Spirit resides in your spirit. He reveals to you the presence of God. He conveys the peace of God. He releases the power of God. He bestows on us the gifts of God. He generates in us the fruits of God. He brings to us the comfort of God, administers the correction of God, even teaches us the truth of God. And yet, despite all that the Holy Spirit does, don't expect your unbelieving friends to understand his work, notice what Jesus says, the world neither sees him nor knows him. The ministry of the Spirit is an enigma to this tangible world that we occupy. Materially minded folks are clueless. But Jesus promises us in verse 18, I will not leave you orphans, I will come again. Jesus was going back to heaven, but the Holy Spirit would be like a father. You know, becoming a Christian is like enrolling in the big brother program, except the Holy Spirit is your big brother. He's there 24-7. He takes you places. He helps you open up and talk. He shows you love and guidance. Jesus said, I won't leave you orphans. He says, for a little while longer and the world will see me no more but you will see me. He's coming back for us. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. You know, in Spanish, there's one word for goodbye, adios, adios. But adios speaks of a permanent farewell, whereas hasta luego What does that mean? That means see you later. Hasta pronto. That means see you soon. Well, here Jesus isn't saying adios. He's saying hasta luego, until next time. I'll see you soon. I'm coming back for you. For he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Those that really love Jesus will obey Jesus. And then verse 22, Judas, not the Iscariot, the other Judas said to him, and in Matthew chapter 10, verse 3, this Judas is also called Thaddeus. And Thad has a question. He says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Now, the Jews expected the Messiah to be a global leader with a worldwide audience. This Judas was a thinker. He put two and two together, and he's wondering if Jesus is Messiah, why is he speaking to just 12 Jews, many of them simple fishermen, rather than commanding a broader stage? Well, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What a promise that is! Do you realize that? Love Jesus, and you pick up a couple of roommates. My, oh, my, the Father and the Son will make your heart their home. But how is this the answer to Judas's question? Why is Jesus wasting his time talking to 12 Jews? Jesus is saying this. He's going to reach the world one person at a time. Before the Messiah reveals himself on the public stage, he first comes to each believing heart. He wants to come to your heart. He wants to... Come to my heart. Verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Don't say you love Jesus and disregard His words. They come from the Father. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. You know, so much of what Jesus had said to the disciples had sailed over their heads when it was said. It'll now be the job of the Holy Spirit, the Helper, to bring his words back to mind. This is why the writing of the disciples was considered such a trusted record, while the New Testament letters have such authority. Because Jesus had promised that his Holy Spirit would be the helper that would recall the things that he had taught to their minds. And you know, this idea of supernatural recall is something that the Holy Spirit does in our own lives as well. You know, he assists our memory from time to time with supernatural help. I can't tell you how many times at crucial moments the Holy Spirit has brought back vital truths to my mind to help me answer a question or remember something that that happened that I'd forgotten. Especially as we get older, we need to lean on the Holy Spirit for that kind of help. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. What the world calls peace is merely the absence of conflict. It's nothing more than a momentary ceasefire. But Jesus puts us in fellowship, in harmony with our creator and our fellow man. This is the peace that he brings. And then verse 28. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. Now don't misunderstand this. When Jesus says my father is greater than I, he's not denying what he had said earlier that he and the father are one. What Jesus addresses here in verse 28 is a chain of command. The father is greater in rank, but the father and son are equal in nature. Jesus was voluntarily, he made himself voluntarily submissive to the father. It was a role that he chose. Think of a biblical marriage. The husband is to be the head of the home. The wife is to be submissive to him. Yet everyone who knows Kathy and I recognizes that she is superior to me in almost every way imaginable. Except maybe jar opening. I think I got her in jar opening. You know, if Kathy ever said, Sandy is greater than I, you know that she's acknowledging our biblical roles or either opening jars, but not much anything else. She's certainly not speaking of attributes. And the same is true of Jesus here. He was submissive to the Father by choice, voluntarily. He was submissive to the Father. He was not inferior. And then verse 29 and now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. You know, Jesus is about to embroil, be embroiled in spiritual warfare, the likes of which has never been seen before or since. Satan is going to throw all that he can at Jesus to try to keep him off the cross. But notice Jesus' defense. He says, Satan has nothing in me. And this is the secret in our overcoming Satan. Understand, for a temptation to succeed, it has to appeal to a desire within us. Thus guard your heart. Be careful what you desire. If you desire only what God desires then whatever Satan offers you, it's not what you want. And so the temptation will bounce right off. That's why we need to guard our hearts. Notice also another point here. Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. You know, when God created Adam, he gave mankind dominion or authority over this world. But when Adam sinned, he forfeited that dominion to Satan. Satan now usurps that authority that once belonged to Adam. Today, the world is controlled by Satan. Thus, Jesus admits that Satan is the ruler of this world. And this sets up the conflict that rages even today. The ruler of this world is going at it, battling for the souls of men with Jesus, the ruler of God's kingdom. And then verse 31, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Which ends the conversation here in the upper room. And what follows now is what occurred as they walked down the Mount of Olives, I'm sorry, down Mount Zion across the Kidron Valley and then up the Mount of Olives to a garden called Gethsemane where they would spend the night. And of course, as they made that walk, they passed numerous vineyards. Vineyards were everywhere. And of course, the vineyard becomes the backdrop for John 15, a chapter that I like to call I Heard It From the Grapevine. Vineyards dotted the landscape all over Israel at the time of Jesus. Isaiah 5, Psalm 80, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 19, Hosea 10, all depicted Israel as God's vine. Like a vine dresser, God expected fruits of righteousness from his people. Yet this fruitfulness never materialized. Israel was a barren vine that God promised to uproot from his vineyard. Judaism was on its way out. It was spiritually dead, incapable of producing good grapes. And in its place, God planted a new vine, the true vine. And Jesus identifies that true vine in verse 1, I am the true vine, he says, and my father is the vine dresser. See, God's initial plan was to graft the Gentiles into the vine of Judaism. Yet Israel proved barren. Legalism and ritualism and hypocrisy had choked the vine. A change was needed. This is why when you come to Jesus, you get grafted into him. His life begins to flow through you. In Christ, we are branches on God's vine. We are merged into the life of Christ and we begin to bear fruit. The Father manages our growth and our pruning. For he says in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, we'll observe a progression in this passage. The believer in Jesus goes from fruit to more fruit to much fruit. You get the idea that the gardener is after fruit? He's not interested in leaves. He wants fruit. Thus, if a branch refuses to abide in the vine, the gardener cuts it off. Let me jump ahead to verse 6 and read what's done to the barren branch. He is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them up and throw them into the fire and they're burned. And folks respond to verse 6 by asking, wait a minute, doesn't the Bible teach eternal security? And I say, absolutely, as long as you're abiding in the vine. If your faith is in Jesus and you're relying on His grace, you are secure eternally. But if there's no fruit in your life and it doesn't really matter If you never took root or if your roots have dried up, if you're dead on the vine, God is going to cut you off and cast you out. He wants fruit. He can't waste sap on a branch that's not bearing fruit. Which brings up another question. What is fruit? And here's my best definition. Fruit is the byproduct of the Holy Spirit's activity in my life. It's the evidence of faith. Spiritual fruit includes love, and joy, and peace, and kindness, and self-control, and good works, and power to witness. Are these kinds of fruits showing up in you? They need to be. But for a vine to reach its maximum yield, it has to be pruned. The dead wood, the excess greenery that robbed the fruit of needed sap get lopped off. In the winter, before the sap rises, when the cold weather beats the sap down into the roots, the vine dresser, he cuts back the branches. And boy, does it hurt. If the vineyard could talk, there'd be awful screams. And we too, have to be pruned. For there are old habits and sinful inclinations and tempting distractions and unnecessary busyness that have to be cut off of our lives. And when it happens you think God is killing you. Man, it hurts. Hey, next time you walk out or when you walk out to get in your car today, and you walk out through the church parking lot, notice the crape myrtles by the front entrances. Every year they get pruned. And not just a little bit. They get hacked. Every green twig gets lopped off those crepe myrtles. And you'd think they were dead. But they're not. Just look at them now. They're beautiful. See, if a plant wants to be fruitful, it has to be pruned. And so does a child of God. God knows there's activities in your life that are worthless, that aren't bearing fruit. And he wants to take them away. He wants to cut them off so that you'll bear more fruit and even much fruit. Jesus continues in verse 3. He says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. See, the grapes in the vineyard were the cleanest in the springtime, after the winter rains. And calendar-wise, it was spring for the disciples. It was the time of the Passover. Spiritually, it was also spring. On the cross, Jesus will atone for their sin. They'll be made righteous through his sacrifice, and this will begin their growth. You know, in the vineyard, the branches are cleaned in the springtime. Thus, all that's needed in the summer for for growth to occur is for those branches to just stay in the vine. As it gets hotter, the sap rises and the fruit blossoms. And this is why Jesus tells his disciples, abide in me and I in you. Just abide in me and I in you. For as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The term abide means to stay. It means to remain, to rest. You never see branches on a vine straining or struggling to grow. You never see that. To bear fruit, all they do is Abide. And the same is true for us as Christians. It's not up to us to produce spiritual fruit in our lives. Our job is to cultivate our connection to the vine. It's the vine that supplies life. It reminds me of a professional golfer. He doesn't overswing. He never overswings. He never swings too hard. He's so smooth. In contrast to me, who looks like a guy with an axe chopping wood or something. I mean, the professional golfer, he trusts the club head to do the work. And he realizes that his job is just to make good contact. And this is our job as Christians. It's not up to us to manufacture character or mimic grace or muster power. That's the work of the Spirit in our lives. Our job is just to keep good contact. Do you fellowship with Jesus daily? Do you read your Bible? Do you spend time with him and pray? Do you keep good contact? Our job is to cultivate the connection. Grapes will grow if we abide in the vine. And then Jesus says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Realize a vine isn't pine. You know, vines are too knotty and twisted to use as building material. All a vine is good for is bearing grapes. And likewise, without the Spirit rising up within us and bearing fruit, our lives are worthless to God. Notice verse 6 tells us, If anyone does not abide in me, notice you can start out in faith but not continue or abide in faith. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Apparently, abiding and asking go hand in hand. The branch knows its needs. It desires more sap. And likewise, we can ask our Father for a greater outpouring of his Holy Spirit. And then verse 9, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. And here's the key to us loving God. By abiding in his love. Do you let God love you? Do you stay in God's love? This is the key to us loving God. We love Him because He first loved us. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. You know, grapes are called God's candy. Their sweetness makes them a delicious snack. Because of my sweet tooth, grapes are my favorite snack. You'll see me at night, just before I go to bed with a cluster of grapes in my hand. I love grapes. And in this regard, I'm just like Jesus because he loves grapes too. He too is most joyful when you and I are fruity. How about that? Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus is going to prove this the very next day on the cross. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. The Greek word translated friends was used to refer to the king's court, his trusted advisors. Jesus says, if you want to be one of my trusted advisors, if you want to be trusted by me, then keep my commandments. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. This is mind-boggling. Jesus calls them friends. You know, servants are hired hands. They're mere employees. They have no stake in the business. They do their job and then they go home. But a co-owner, a partner, a friend has a stake in the operation. And here Jesus promotes his disciples from mere wage earners to now co-owners. He's upping the ante on their involvement in his kingdom by drawing them in. In fact, he tells them, you did not choose me, but I chose you. In the first century, Jews would choose their own rabbi. But when Jesus, he chose his disciples. And why did he choose them? I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. The world didn't pat Jesus on the back and it won't treat you any better. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And when Jesus uses this term world, he's not talking about the planet per se, the the earth, the ground. He's talking about the ungodly, rebellious spirit of the age. It shows up so often in our culture. And Jesus says of this world that it loves its own. It hates to be corrected. It shows its teeth whenever it's opposed. He says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. If you choose to follow Jesus, then you can expect this world to treat you just as it treated him. He says, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. And throughout history, the church has always seen it as an honor to be persecuted for Jesus' name's sake. It was in the mid-1600s, Obadiah Holmes broke ranks with the State Church of England He held a prayer meeting in a Massachusetts home. And as punishment for his rebellion, the governor ordered him to be flogged. Holmes was tied up in downtown Boston. He was beaten so severely, the only way he could lie down was on his elbows and his knees. And yet with the last lash, Holmes cried out, You have struck me as with roses. As if his torture had been a trophy. Christians have always taken persecution as an honor. And if persecution returns, we'll do it again. Verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father also. Hey, you reject Jesus and you're hating the God in heaven. Don't make a mistake about that. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. And here he quotes two Psalms, the 35th and the 69th. They hated me without a cause. And how it will be seen the next day when they nail him to a cross. The chapter ends. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. These last two verses will be the first two verses we'll discuss next time. But remember, Jesus is coming back. He's a man of his word. And he's promised to return. In the meantime, we have a helper. Let's abide in the vine. Let's trust in God's pruning. And let's lean into the Holy Spirit and allow Him to produce His fruit in us. Father, thank you.